Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our new membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Mary Ziegler, Professor of Law at UC Davis and author of the new book, Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Mary, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks for having me. So congratulations on the book. Uh, What are the Dollars for Life? Well, Dollars for Life, I've, I've been writing history of the US abortion debate now for a while, and I was noticing that this interesting intersection between campaign finance law and the abortion debate, in particular how campaign finance law both changed the the fight to reverse Roe v. Wade and ultimately sort of changed the operation of the Republican Party in the United States. So the questions that are are asked in the book are sort of what were social conservatives in the United States doing caring so much about money in politics when they were not the ones who ultimately had the most money to spend? And then what what were the consequences of the shifts they they helped to produce, Um, which, I mean, in brief was a a surge in spending in politics by actors other than political parties in the United States. So, you know, super PACs, nonprofits, dark money groups. Um, And uh, the argument the book makes is that these these changes helped um, or at least contributed to the, tr- the transformation of the American Republican Party and the rise of figures, the sort of more populist figures like Donald Trump in that party. Yeah, and in, and in case we're not sure what the stakes are, you make them pretty clear in the introduction where you say that in their efforts to reinvent the Republican Party, opponents of abortion effectively changed how American democracy works. Yeah, they did. And I think to some degree that was, uh, that was their design. I mean, one interesting... <laughs> One interesting feature, I think, of this book is that the people I've written about in this book have read the book um, and largely, I think, uh, approve of the book. So, I mean, that, that's a claim that's been read by the people who, let's say, the, the historical figures who feature most prominently in it. And that, that in part, was their ambition. So um, they did change how and how well American democracy works sometimes intentionally, uh, and sometimes it was an unintended consequence of other changes they were pursuing. And it, I mean, it is interesting that, I mean, the very first lines that you write in the book are where you talk about how in January 2021, the, dem- the demise of Roe v. Wade seed imminent, uh, but few were paying attention. Uh, and uh, I mean, in some ways, that's not a surprise. COVID, the event, events of January the 6th, I mean, we were mm-hmm. distracted. But uh, as it becomes clear in the book, th- this is actually a persistent feature of Roe v. Wade, that, that people just weren't paying attention. I think that's right. Um, and I think there was, I think conservatives, well, conservatives weren't always paying attention, unless you mean folks who are opposed to abortion. Because of course, it's important when you're, and I think this is something that people um, in the United States and elsewhere do, they sometimes lump all conservatives together, but anti-abortion groups, of course, were always paying attention to Roe, but the, the work they were doing uh, to change the law of abortion, to change the law of money and politics, to change the Republican Party, I think often was not seen as important until really the month or so before the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade. I think there had been a, a, a lot of, to your point, a lot of people ignoring or playing down the importance of that history until the very end. 
And I mean, to that point, I mean, it's it's something that, that has been said a lot recently that, for example, if, if this mattered so much, why, for example, did Barack Obama say that it was not a legislative priority in 2009, even though effectively he had a supermajority or pretty close to a supermajority uh, in the Senate? I mean, it, it wasn't quite simply. And I think to some degree, progressives in the United States have long overestimated the stability of constitutional doctrine in the Supreme Court. And so quite clearly during the early years of the Obama administration, there was a sense that no, the court would not overrule Roe, at least not anytime soon, and therefore that the Obama administration could concentrate on other priorities like the Affordable Care Act. And that theme you see repeated again in the 90s when Bill Clinton had arguably the votes to pass some kind of protections for abortion rights. Again, you see Democrats saying essentially, well, you know, the Supreme Court is not imminently going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I think with that, there was an almost an assumption that the Supreme Court would probably never overrule Roe v. Wade, that there would be too much institutional damage to the court, that the justices who were on the court, whether conservative or not, would have sort of enough of a grounding in the nation's legal elite that they wouldn't want to do that sort of institutional damage. There was almost a, a thought that what actually happened was unthinkable. So the idea of legislating on abortion was sort of pushed off um, or seen as unimportant more than once in recent history. Yeah, and it's it's one of the, the really clever things about this book, which, uh, of course, you've been working on for a while, that the timing of uh, is interesting. But it is the bigger story of the book that, you know, really, uh, up until the last few months, the pro-life movement had, had really been seen as no more than a bit part player when it came to making Supreme the Supreme Court central issue for for ordinary Republican voters, that just the, the centrality of it, the the way in which it contributed to the rise of Donald Trump, the transformation of the GOP, these are things that you outline in the book, but that most people, they, they just hadn't given a second thought to. That's right. And I think there was also sort of almost a, 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 almost a freezing in time of how people understood the relationship between the anti-abortion movement and the Republican Party and American conservatism, because early on in that relationship, of course, and for some time, you would have Republican politicians like Ronald Reagan saying things that anti-abortion voters wanted to hear, and ultimately not really doing that much to advance an anti-abortion agenda in office, right? Nominating Supreme Court justices who didn't really care that much about abortion, not using much political capital toward an abortion ban, and I think that that kind of became the narrative. And so people missed some of these important changes that you outlined. The fact that conservative voters were for a long time much more likely to care about control of the Supreme Court, um, including, of course, conservative voters who don't know much about the law. Right. This is not just cons the conservative lawyers. This is cons regular right wing voters in America and the, the anti-abortion movements work on campaign finance, which I don't think many people were focused on either. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned Reagan there. You do show how es essentially he is the first person, certainly the first president, who seems to recognise that the question of appointing conservative justices to the Supreme Court that's a way to get social conservatives to the polling booth to vote Republican at election time. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think Reagan was also one of the first politicians to sort of embrace the abortion issue rather than run away from it. Um, earlier, uh, I think, with maybe the exception of Richard Nixon, other Republicans and Democrats had seen abortion as sort of unnecessarily divisive, a way of kind of um, separating politicians in their caucus from one another. Reagan believed this would be a way to win over uh, Catholics and white evangelical Protestants who had maybe voted for Democrats um, kind of on economic grounds, right? Sort of because they were affiliated with unions or um, labor movements. So Reagan started a process that sort of started this relationship or helped to, at least on the party side, helped to lay the foundation for this partnership with the, with the, uh, between the anti-abortion movement and the Republican Party. I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I I guess it's it's a given that the Democratic Party, by and large, looks down on the religious right. But it becomes clear uh, throughout the the narrative of the book that uh, the GOP, particularly what you describe as the establishment of the GOP, pretty much looks down on the religious right too. That essentially they thought that they could use its votes, but not offer very much in return. But as you show in the book, that balance of power actually shifts over time. It did, yeah. And I think money had a lot to do with that. Um, the intuition, because you may ask yourself, why would the anti-abortion movement care about money in politics? If, if most people, readers think of money in American politics, they think of figures like the Koch brothers, right? Essentially people with almost unlimited amounts of money to spend, who of course would have an incentive to want there to be fewer regulations of campaign spending. Anti-abortion groups, I think, saw campaign finance as a way to gain leverage in a Republican Party where they had relatively little, right? Both in the sense of helping the right kind of candidates win, in the sense of proving the utility of the anti-abortion movement, if the anti-abortion movement was litigating to loosen campaign spending rules, or helping Republicans master loopholes and existing rules to raise and spend more, then the anti-abortion movement would become a more valuable part of that coalition. Um, ultimately, what also happened was that the kinds of spending that the anti-abortion movement helped usher in were, were, were types of spending that the party leadership no longer really controlled. So while it's true that Republican Party has its own super PACs and the like, they don't really have the ability to control what other people do with their own outside spending groups. And with that um, came the end of their ability to kind of crush populists because they were no longer able to spend them out of elections as they had been able to in the 90s and earlier. Yeah, and you and you show how you know Donald Trump really understands the importance of the court. I mean, he he talks about the Supreme Court in a way that is different, that is not really traditional for a presidential candidate. Uh, he talks about mm -hmm. the kinds of justices, first of all, that he will appoint, and then in twenty twenty that he did appoint. I mean, this is this is a a new way of thinking about of weaponizing uh, the court. It, it seems to me it's a different kind of rhetoric. Absolutely, yeah. And it's also the anti-abortion movement, I think, also understood that you would need to have a different kind of justice. Because it was true, of course, in the 90s that the Supreme Court could have reversed Roe and had six justices chosen by Republicans, and yet did not reverse Roe. So the anti-abortion movement understood that you would need to have a different kind of politics of the Supreme Court and different people chosen to be on the Supreme Court. In other words, people who were 
not as concerned about political blowback or political chaos, because both of those things would be expected with the reversal of Roe. So you would need justices who were not concerned about that. And you would need Republican politicians who thought that they could thrive in that kind of political fallout and political chaos rather than being intimidated by it. And I guess, I mean, it, it does help us to understand that what at first sight would seem an unlikely alliance between Donald Trump and the religious right. And you know, I'm very struck that, I mean, one of the main uh, figures, key figures in, in the book is this uh, conservative lawyer, James Bopp. And uh, you show how you know, he becomes an enthusiastic Trump supporter by 2020, not for Trump's personality or his religious beliefs or his morality, which frankly he doesn't like, but because Trump had delivered the results that the pro-life movement wanted, that everything else is secondary for him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Bob would say, in addition, um, that over time it became a positive that Donald Trump was not a popular politician looking to, to build a broad coalition. He was a politician who, who essentially won by energizing the people who already liked him by moving further to the right to turn out voters who were already on the right. And that was that kind of political brand and even that weakness was tremendous appealing, tremendously appealing to anti-abortion groups who wanted to be able to have more pull with the politicians in power. And of course, Trump consistently had the highest approval ratings, for example, among white evangelicals who were opposed to abortion. He consistently did more to cater to the anti-abortion movement, in part because he had no other choice, really, in terms of his own electoral survival. And so I think Bob came to see the things he had disliked about Trump, like his personality and his sort of unpopularity broadly defined as things that could actually serve the interests of the broader anti-abortion movement. So quite a lot of the uh, the book is about money. How, how did the abortion debate impact the broader debate about money in politics? Well, it's obviously part of a much broader conversation. Um, the people who were fighting to change the rules of money in American politics were not limited to anti-abortion groups. In fact, they joined an existing fight, you know, a few decades in. So you had some uh, sort of small government conservatives who saw regulations of election of money in politics as sort of yet another area where government was neither confident um, nor really from an ideological standpoint suited to be involved in. You had civil libertarians on the left who believed that limits on spending on political speech were the same as limits on political speech itself. Um, you had sort of third parties and other kinds of minority players in American politics who thought campaign spending limits made it impossible for them to get rid of established parties or incumbents. But Anti-abortion groups made a big difference. Um, first, they were, I would say, sort of the linchpin or the, the kind of connective tissue between other social conservatives in the fight to deregulate campaign spending. Most social conservatives had not been interested in this issue. And anti-abortion groups took the lead in lobbying them and getting them on board. Anti-abortion groups tried to do a lot to solidify the position of the Republican Party um, on campaign finance. The Republican Party had usually been more opposed to campaign finance limits than Democrats, but in a kind of opportunistic way. Generally, Republicans were perfectly fine with campaign spending limits that hurt Democrats disproportionately. So anti-abortion groups took the lead in lobbying the Republican Party to see this as an issue of principle. And Bob and his colleagues also did a lot 
in terms of working in the Supreme Court, litigating major cases that created protections for campaign spending, constitutional protections, that made it much harder for states and the federal government to regulate, including uh, the, arguably the most famous campaign finance case in American history, Citizens United, versus the Federal Election Commission, which opened the door to um, unlimited corporate spending, including, as I mentioned, these sort of ideological corporations and super PACs. And I, I, I did find it genuinely fascinating, the debate that went on on the, uh, on the right about whether concentrating on campaign finance was actually the right approach, that to many, it, it actually seemed too process-driven, that there should be bolder statements on public morality and so on. But as, as you show in the book, as a, as a political strategy, it actually showed a quite profound understanding of how politics actually works. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that people who are very process-driven in the anti-abortion movement were also exceptionally opportunistic in an effective way. So over and over again, you see them focusing on process and making arguments that sometimes don't work, right? In Citizens United, the argument that Bob and his colleagues made was not the one accepted by the Supreme Court, but they found in the argument the Supreme Court did buy an opening to do something much bigger than maybe they had originally anticipated. So this was... Um, I think a story of how people who were not focusing on actual public attitudes about abortion very often, right? This was not about changing people's minds about whether abortion should be legal or not, but focusing on how politics and democracy in the United States operate could achieve much more, um, even as I think popular opinion didn't change. And even when the initial plan didn't work, right? Even when the anti-abortion movement was having to adjust on the fly and capitalize on opportunities that they hadn't anticipated getting. I mean, the the subtitle of the book is is the fall of the Republican Republican establishment, and you know I'm I'm very struck that the story you tell is one of the dangers of political pragmatism as well. That as 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 you say uh, in the book, that initially the Republican establishment found nothing to dislike in the dominant pro life strategy. You say uh, the promise of controlling the court that could unite a fractious coalition and turn out voters. Uh, but I, I guess that uh, actually ended up being something of a Faustian bargain, didn't it? It did, yeah. And I think that from a practical standpoint for conservatives in other countries, I think if there's a lesson to be taken from this book, it's that aligning with social conservatives who you would not want to govern, right? Whom you view as, you know, either incompetent to govern or dangerous and thinking you can manage them, it doesn't always work, right? There's, I think, a practice within the American Republican Party of thinking that you would get anti-abortion voters to do what you liked, but that ultimately they wouldn't actually fundamentally change the party or the country. And I think, at least in the United States, that turned to be, out to be, as you said, quite a Faustian bargain. And I think you sometimes see that playing out in other countries as well, that social conservatives are are, I think, courted by conservative parties, but not always taken seriously by them. And to that extent, this is a cautionary tale. 
One of the things that I found uh, very welcome about the book is that uh, you're primarily concerned with politics, that you you actually, you don't really um, show your, your own views on the kind of the ethics and the morality around uh, the question. You're uh, kind of analytically detached in, in what you're doing. Just, I mean, just talk to me a little bit about how you establish that analytical framework, that detachment um, in a debate which is as controversial as something uh, like the abortion debate? Well, I've, I've always tried to write that way, in part because I, when I was a young historian, I couldn't find anyone who did. Um, I would find people who, I mean, it was very easy to tell very early on what people's normative priors on abortion were, in part because they were making no effort to disguise them as sort of all history is advocacy. And I, I think that went um, for people really with varying views on abortion. And so just basic information about how the movements operated and what they were doing was missing. And I, I, so I wanted to fill that gap. And I think also just from the standpoint of how I understand history contributing to advocacy, I think it's much more effective to let people form their own judgments about what this history means. And so if I tell you what people said and did and what they were thinking, I think people are entirely capable of deciding whether that's good or bad when it comes to abortion. I don't think you need me you know, to intervene um, and, and tell you <laughs> what, what it means. Um, and I, I've, I've always believed that, I think. Um, and I think that's true of this book too. I mean, I say that this changed how democracy works. I think it's clear in some ways that I'm concerned about those changes, but I think hearing people in their own words describe what they wanted to do and what in fact happened is a better way, I think, to let people decide for themselves what to make of it and what should be done about it. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, how do you balance the the big argument, the systemic changes that you're talking about uh, in the book, along with the the just, I, I suppose, the good old-fashioned realpolitik that is going on, the, the political judgments and misjudgments, uh, for example, the way in which the Democrats effectively get schooled by Mitch McConnell uh, over Supreme Court appointments, the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, was 75 when she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in January 2009. If she'd stepped down then, uh, uh, President Obama would have been able to uh, secure her successor and so on. I mean, how, how much of this is just the day-to-day -day ordinary politics, making a call, getting it right, getting it wrong, plus this kind of bigger picture that you've so brilliantly put together? Well, I think in terms of causation, there's always a lot of both. I mean, there's nothing inevitable about the overruling of Roe. And of course, there's also nothing inevitable about the overruling of Roe being a good thing for conservatives decades down the line. Of course, you could imagine a book about, and in fact, historians have written this book about how the Roe v. Wade decision was secured and how the left you know, managed to pull that off. And if your conclusion from that was that somehow progressives were going to be in a much better situation 20 or 30 years down the road, you'd be sorely mistaken. But yeah, yes, there's always the sort of day-to-day real politique makes a big difference, especially when you're talking about the mortality of nine people on the Supreme Court. Um, I think at the same time, if you don't understand the kind of broader plans that helped bring those changes about, 
you don't understand the stakes of those changes. And so one of the things I wanted to do in this book is essentially say, if you are interested in American democracy, you should be interested in what made this decision possible, even if you oppose legal abortion, even if you're indifferent to legal abortion, because this movement has made changes to American politics that are consequential for people with no view on abortion whatsoever, or people who may even think it's all things being equal and better for abortion to be illegal. Um, so I, I think understanding the broader movement behind some of this history, certainly not the only contributor, um, helps people understand the stakes of what we're going to see unfold going forward. And you do, at the, at the end of the book, you do bring out the broader implications as well that, I mean, you, you say that what's clear is that party polarisation has coincided with what you describe as a, sp- a spike in negative partisanship. Americans increasingly scorn those in the opposing political party, you say, negative partisanship allows extremists to flourish. So, you know, I I guess that part of the argument that you're making is that the abortion debate is exhibit A uh, in in that broader point. It is. And I think it's also exhibit A in, in how movements are willing to damage the kind of ground rules of democracy in pursuit of what they view as sort of rights, human rights that are more important than democracy. Um, and we'll, you know, freely admit that. So abortion is both, I think, exhibit A, and it's also exhibit A in the sense that not just, you know, it's it's not new <laughs> to, to assume that abortion is an exhibit A when it comes to extreme partisanship in the United States. But I think it's it's also exhibit A in the sense that people are willing to make these fundamental process changes to advance their goals when it comes to something like guns or something like abortion, um, in ways we might find concerning over and above what we think about guns or abortion or any other substantive issue. Yeah, because as, as you say, uh, ultimately, for, for those on both sides, the abortion wars have always been about fundamental human rights. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, as, as a law professor, do you, do you think it's helpful to frame the debate in that kind of way? Is, do you think that this is a question that is best, un, best understood in terms of human rights? Well, I think it even, well, so I, I guess I would say potentially, but I think that other countries and European countries are prime examples have managed to settle on solutions that respect the, the fact that abortion is a difficult issue and that there are strong beliefs about abortion and that there could even be com- competing rights claims in abortion without devolving into the kind of partisan mess and damage to democracy you see in the United States. So I think it's possible to see abortion as a human rights issue without the kind of negativity and partisanship and kind of democratic backsliding that we see in the United States. Um, So I think that it's certainly, the more you view abortion as a fundamental human rights issue, the harder it is to compromise about it. But that doesn't automatically mean a kind of profoundly dysfunctional abortion politics of the kind you see in the United States. And it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, you you do point out that actually there is, I suppose, what we might describe something closer to, uh, for example, opinion in Europe 
uh, in terms of public opinion in the United States that you say that, you know, essentially it's been reasonably stable, that most voters clearly do not feel positively about abortion, you say, and favour some restrictions, but they do strongly resist criminalising the procedure or eliminating abortion rights. So so there, there is, roughly speaking, some kind of consensus or at least perhaps a potential consensus I guess the question is how we get to that. Yeah, I mean, what's you're absolutely right that there appears to be a consensus. Most Americans seem to think there is a right to abortion. If you ask Americans questions about, do you think that fetal life deserves protection without the context of abortion restrictions? A lot of them say yes to that too. Um, and then when you ask them about criminalizing abortion, you, you get small minorities in favor of that. So it, you would probably get, and there's also, it's worth emphasizing, uh, something like a European consensus on the timing of when you restrict abortion. So support for fairly liberal access to abortion in the first 12 to 14 weeks of pregnancy in the United States is much higher than for later in pregnancy, which is, again, what you would expect to see throughout much of Europe. I think part of the problem um, in the United States, and I think the book tracks this too, is that the, the abortion question has been handed to partisans and parties, not to voters. And that parties are increasingly catering to the people who care the most about the abortion issue, who tend to have the most extreme views, and not to the kind of median American voter who, who tends to be much more of the kind of position we've been describing. And so I'm not sure how to solve that. One thing I'm interested to see, one interesting experiment is bypassing partisans and going directly to voters. So um, sort of state-based versions of something like what we saw with the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, when uh, voters are being asked directly not to vote for a Republican or Democrat, but just to decide what they want their state constitution or state statute to say about abortion. Because it, it may be that if you can kind of disconnect American partisanship from substantive law on abortion, you may get something like the kind of stable compromise you see in other parts of the of the world. I don't know if that will work, but or how well, because of course, partisans can tinker with direct democracy to try to slant the results in a desired way. But I think that we'll see experiments of that kind. We may see improvements in those experiments, and, and that may be a promising angle. And there, there, there does seem to have been a, a kind of an interest in American politics, for example, in that Irish example, which used citizen assemblies uh, as a way to move the consensus forward, uh, kind of stage by stage. I think that's right. And I think there's also, um, I think, a reluctance to just focus on what courts are doing because of what we've seen not only in the United States but in Poland that court-based rights of course are not in any way separate from politics or from potential damage to democracy so I think there's been the eighth amendment experience in Ireland I think was inspiring for some people in America because it seemed like a more not, not only potentially more democratic but also maybe more lasting way to, to create some kind of lasting consensus or compromise. Uh, and whether, you know, how you translate that in the American context, I think is part of the challenge. 
So the, finally, Mary, you've you've been looking at the the long story going back at least uh, to the to the Reagan administration. I, I wonder what do you think looking forward? What is the next stage in this post row world uh, that we're now embarking on? Well, I think in the short term, we're going. There's definitely interest, especially on, on the anti-abortion side, but really on both sides, in some sort of top-down federal solution whether that's a federal statute banning abortion or a U.S. Supreme Court decision saying that abortion is unconstitutional. I think if Democrats had more support in Congress, there may be interest in the, the equivalent on the abortion rights side. Um, but I think in the short term, you're going to see a lot of conflict um, between the federal government and states as the federal government tries to institute some kind of limited protections as the Biden administration has for people who are um, in emergency situations or who are dying and states that don't want to um, abide by federal standards. I think we'll see a lot of conflicts between states as states try to limit um, travel to other states for abortion or to criminally punish people who perform abortions on people from out of state, um, companies that subsidize travel from state to state. So I think there, we're going to see a kind of level of legal conflict um, between states that we haven't really in quite a long time. And of course, ironically, all of that is going to land back in federal court, which is what the Supreme Court promised would not happen if Roe were overturned. But the, the end of Roe, of course, is just the beginning from the standpoint of people in the anti-abortion movement, really, or the abortion rights movement. So the book is Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. It's written by my guest, Mary Ziegler, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Mary, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damian Marusik. Bookstack is taking a few weeks off, so do join us again at the end of August. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, wishing you a very happy summer.